Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we are coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. So folks, before I give you the lowdown on today's program, let me take a second to thank some of our small business partners, because where would we be without small businesses? Hey, Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's my grocery store. It's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. You can now order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Good food, great community. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page, or just by giving Dr. Kim Holding a call at 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. So later in the program, uh, Larry Stone's going to join us. We're going to be talking about uh, what happens when big ag and big government get together, scratch each other's backs, you know, by, basically bypass the rules. Well, you get a huge factory farm that's causing a lot of grief up in northeast Iowa. We're also going to be talking with Joel Miller. He's the uh, Lynn County Auditor, Lynn County, Iowa. And um, <laughs> there is yet still another way the Republicans are trying to suppress the vote. And this may not be unique to Iowa, but it involves declaring a lot of voters inactive, <laughs> even if they were active not that long ago. We'll also be talking with uh, Dr. Maureen McHugh about how one small library is leading the way on climate change, even as the nearby state university seems to be stalling out. And finally, Ashley Bonin Campbell joined Kathy Burns and I to talk about what the Girl Scouts are saying and doing regarding local food security. But first, I want to talk to you about the race to save the world. This is exciting. Um, it's a really high-powered film by Joe Gantz. And if you don't know Joe Gantz, he's an Emmy-winning producer. He produced American Winter and Ending Disease and also Taxi Cab Confessions. The uh, Race to Save the World looks at the work of a handful of individual activists who have been willing to take extreme risks in the uh, fight against the climate emergency. Uh, here's a quote from Joe's website. Encompassing protests and arrests, courtroom drama and family turmoil, these everyday heroes push to create a sustainable world, often risking their relationships, careers, and freedoms in the process. The Race to Save the World is an inspiring call to action, urging each one of us to become climate warriors for a livable future. All right, full disclosure, I have a very brief cameo appearance in which I uh, say something about uh, not being careful to not be killed in a lightning storm. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, Great March for Climate Action is one of five or six um, activist and you know enterprises that are uh, profiled in the film. And there are four marchers in particular from that 2014 cross-country march who will be uh, featured, Miriam Kasia, Michael Zimbrano, uh, Mac Wilkins, and Sean Glenn. It was an interesting experience to reflect on for me because uh, for eight months, I basically lived with this documentary crew. They followed the march every step of the way from California to Washington, D.C. And, uh, it, you know, it's it's interesting. I get a, I get a sense of what it's like to be on reality TV, where you don't, <laughs> you you know that everything you do and say, 
is is being is being recorded, and um, that was the case with uh, with the uh, Race to Save the World documentary crew. Uh, I remember the first day, and that was the um, twenty mile mar- nearly twenty mile march through Los Angeles, with a with ten inches of rain, uh, storms, clouds, lightning, thunder, a huge rainfall. I mean, walking up to our ankles and calves, even some people, and uh, the documentary crew soldiered through that with us. To their credit. Uh, it was uh, it was quite an experience, and I imagine even more complicated for them trying to deal with equipment in such weather. Um, you know, there was also an incident in the market, maybe the, the first, um, I think we were in Arizona by then, and people had been working in the kitchen truck trying to get a meal ready, and something, I can't remember quite what happened, but it wasn't good, food spilled, equipment fill, spilled, and... Um, People were upset and marches were trying to help and clean it up and whatnot. And the film crew just kept filming the whole thing. And I get it. That's what they're supposed to do. They're there to document reality. And reality in this case was a mess. But there were some marchers, more than a few, who were really angry at the crew, the, 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 the film crew, for not dropping their cameras and helping with the cleanup. And it was hard to explain that, no, that's what they're supposed to do. And uh, you know, I remember another moment that was awkward for people, but again, very telling in terms of what this crew's focus was on. They, they were trying to capture not just the fact that people were walking across the country to raise the alarm about climate change, but also that you know, in doing so, you know, you're 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 living your life, and your life has become very different than it normally is in standard society. You're in a tent. You're Living communally, you're eating out of the back of a truck. You're you're you're, you're peeing in a in a box, <laughs> you know. And uh, and and the film crew, well, they didn't they didn't they didn't barge into the commodes. I'll give them that. But they did, for example, one night they wanted to get us, you know, preparing for bed. So they got people brushing their teeth. They got people crawling into their tents. They even you know put the camera up to the tent and showed people getting into their sleeping bags and whatnot. And for some people. And actually for me as well, that was a little awkward, <laughs> but I understood why they did that. And again, for some people, it was not just awkward, but, but annoying and upsetting. But again, I think what, what, has, um, what Joe Gans has produced out of this film is pretty outstanding. And uh, my hope is that it will inspire a lot of people to take some real serious action to address the climate crisis. Some of the other people featured in the film, I'm, I mean, really impressive uh, people with uh, tremendous commitment. Uh, Abby Brockway, um, she's a mom. And uh, when an oil train uh, derailed about a mile from uh, her daughter's uh, school, it, uh, it just scared the heck out of her. And she got involved with uh, a group that decided to block the train carrying oil through a nearby Washington state town. Well, that got her and four other people arrested. And the uh, film takes us through that scenario and also through the court hearing, the, uh, the trial in which uh, Abby and others raise uh, the, 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 what we call the necessity defense, saying we, were, we needed to do this action, even though it involves civil disobedience and getting arrested. We needed to do it to prevent greater harm, uh, in, her, in her case, to her family, to her community, and more broadly to the entire planet. The film... Um, also shows uh, Michael Foster. Maybe some folks remember the Valve Turners, as they're called, the five activists across the country who on uh, October 11th of 2016 
in four different states, they, they timed this perfect. They cut through fencing uh, and got into these valve sites and turned off the oil. They literally stopped the oil from flowing, oil from Canada. They stopped it for a big chunk of the day. And, uh, well, <laughs> uh, most, of the, most of the valve turners um, didn't go to prison. Uh, Foster did get sentenced to six months. He's now on probation. He's featured in the film. Ajit Piper is also uh, in the film. He's part of the uh, Our Children's Trust lawsuit. And that's, um, that, that suit has been going on for a while. It's, it's been both at the federal level and at the state level. And Ajit is one of um, 12 young people in the state of Washington who brought that case to the Washington Supreme Court. Again, contending that the state had violated the younger generation's right to life, liberty, property, and equal protection of the law because they have failed to adequately address the climate crisis, not only failed to address it, but exacerbated it. Uh, his story is also pretty strong, and again, very personal. You get into some conversation with him and his brother, his, his mom. It's um, Every one of these vignettes has a strong personal angle to it. Uh, these are all real people, average people, normal people, who are doing uh, incredible things for the crisis of our time. Bill Moyer is another one. He's the co-founder of the Backbone Campaign. Uh, that's a group that has become known for using kayaks to uh, block, uh, well, in this case, in the film, it blocks a shell oil drilling rig that's headed out to the Arctic. It's a very dramatic and, um, and intense scene in the film. And again, um, you know, you, you, some of the conversation that, uh, that the production team has with Bill shows just how big of an impact this is having on his life, his family. You know, so... I really strongly recommend you take a look at it, folks. The Race to Save the World. It just uh, is. It, it was just released. You can go online to theracetosavetheworld.com. So go out there, check that out. There's the trailer. It's about two minutes long. Um, my Climate March friends will be uh, making a very brief appearance at the end of the trailer, but they are very prominently uh, featured uh, during the film itself. And again, I think the point is that whether it's marching across the country or or, or taking um, a, a very contentious lawsuit to the courts, or sitting upon a tripod to stop, you know, to, to, to stop an oil train, or to getting into one of the valves and turning it off, you know, there's um, this is a time for dramatic action. It's a time when when strong statements need to be made to wake people up to the urgency of this crisis. And uh, you know, honestly, back in 2014, I thought we were a lot closer to getting people to wake up to the reality. Uh, hopefully, the race to save the world will be one more significant step forward to getting people to understand just how urgent this is and how important it is that we all take whatever action we can to address the escalating climate emergency. Again, the race to save the world, check it out. And if you uh, go to uh, the Climate March's website, that's climatemarch.org, you can, you can register to see the film through the Climate March's website and also learn more about the work that Climate March is currently doing. Uh, one thing they're doing, of course, is to uh, promote Hannah Bacon's uh, March for Climate Action from Coast to Coast. Anyway, we'll be back in a minute, folks, with more conversation. Larry Stone's going to join us. We're going to talk about a confined anim animal feeding operation that brings up a whole new set of concerns about the interaction of big corporations and big government. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. 
Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Brother Trucker for that tune, Downtown. That's been our bumper music here for over 10 years now. Hey, thanks to our local nonprofit entities that help make this program possible as well. Thanks to Bold Iowa, building rural-urban coalitions to address climate change, to prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. I would like to welcome Larry Stone to the program. Larry is the former outdoor writer at the Des Moines Register. He's a freelance writer and photographer, a conservationist, and an environmental advocate. Larry, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed. I appreciate the chance to be on. And we've got a, we've got a new problem on our hands in Northeast Iowa. This is... um. A huge livestock operation, what we tend to call a confined animal feeding operation, or a CAFO here in Iowa, and um, it comes with an interesting twist, as I understand it, with a with a, an unusually brazen conflict of interest, and also, I, I guess I should say, an alleged collusion between industry and government officials. Larry, uh, give us your take on what's going on up there. Well, you, you said it's a new problem. I wish it, we could say it was new. Uh, it started... Four years ago, uh, when it was first proposed to have 11,600 head of cattle at a lot uh, operation in the watershed of Bloody Run Creek, which is a prime trout stream, outstanding Iowa wet water uh, between Monona and uh, McGregor in northeast Iowa. And we don't have a lot of trout streams in Iowa. 
I uh, can't tell you the exact number, but they're confined to the mostly to northeast uh, right. Iowa counties, eight or nine counties up yeah. there. Uh, so th- yeah, they are <laughs> they're unique uh, in in the state. And is is, 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 is my my understanding is that most people who weighed in on this confinement opposed it. There was a strong local opposition across the political spectrum. Yeah, the uh, the most recent uh, public hearing, they, I think there were about a hundred people uh, spoke. Uh, against it, and only one or two uh, in, in favor. Uh, it's just uh, the scale of the operation is so large that it's just one of those things, uh, you know, something is, is bound to go wrong. You know, 11,600 head of cattle. It's in the watershed of Bloody Run Creek and limestone, uh, karst uh, topography with sinkholes. The potential for water pollution is so great. It's just a major, major concern. So this isn't a, a factory. This isn't a building. This is an open feedlot, right? Well, <laughs> the DNR defines an open feedlot as any pen that has at least 10% of the uh, pen open to the sky. So, yes, 90% of the uh, lot will be covered with a roof, but 10% is not and so therefore it uh, becomes an open feedlot there are six buildings that will house these uh, 11,000 cattle uh, in the in the plan anyway that's um so i i would think that some of the local farmers would have trouble with that as well so well uh good question uh the uh, clayton county is a, is a livestock uh, county there are quite a few uh, uh, hog confinements as well as some uh, cattle operations uh, in Clayton County. Uh, some of the, the Clayton County farmers uh, raise uh, cattle, uh, and they might even have their cattle be fed uh, at this uh, Supreme Beef facility. But yeah, that anytime you have a big operation, uh, the, the little guys uh, sort of wonder, are they going to get squeezed out? That's yeah. for sure. Because I mean, that part of the state, much like Wisconsin, is known for uh, you know dairy operations. Uh, there are uh, some large um, confinement dairies, a, a few in Clayton County. I couldn't tell you the, how many, but Clayton County, I think, used to be one of the top dairy uh, um, counties in the state. And in the last oh several decades, they're now huge dairies, and a lot of little dairy farmers have gone uh, out okay. of business. And the only ones that left are the are the one with hundreds hundreds of head of uh, cattle that is unfortunate so so these um the, the, these uh this confinement will be owned by a uh, uh someone with connections to a powerful political figure in iowa politics yeah. correct well it's yeah a uh, supreme beef uh llc one of the owners is uh, jared walls uh, his wife uh, is the daughter of Dan Zumbach, who is a Republican uh, chair of the Senate uh, Agriculture Committee in the Iowa Legislature. Um, and he's, he's, for, was, he's from that area of the state, too, right? Uh, Dan Zumbach uh, actually does not live in the, uh, the Clayton County. Uh, in his district is actually farther south of there, so right. he does not represent... Uh, the district that the, the lot is in, but his uh, son-in-law and his daughter uh, are involved in in the operation. So one of the complaints that people have had in Iowa for a long time, and I, I, I mean, I, I first started working on this uh, this problem back in 1995 with what's become known as House File 519, the the bill that opened up Iowa for 
confinement operations. And the, the biggest one to move to the state at that time was uh, was uh, Wendell Murphy from North Carolina. <laughs> uh, they ended, North Carolina ended up putting in some pretty heavy regulations to stop his ilk, but uh, we opened the door to him here. But, um, you know, the, the, the problem has always been uh, a, a lot of politicians have just said, okay, I'm just going to let this happen. Um, we can't we, we can't say no to the propensity for agriculture to get bigger and bigger. And, um, you know, but I don't, I, I don't know if I can think of a single example where a key state legislator has had a very, you know, very direct family connection to someone proposing something this large and this controversial. This seems unusual to me in that case. Uh, I guess we hope it's unusual. You don't know, I guess, what might have happened behind the scenes that uh, none of us ever knew about. But, you know, it just seems like uh, you're right. Uh, in Iowa, uh, uh, agriculture is is king, uh, and the people uh, don't want to do anything that might uh, suppress economic development. And if you Try to put your thumb on and you know, have more regulations. Uh, mm. A lot of politicians are afraid that's going to hurt our, our economy. So which is they're, they're reluctant to do so. Which is remarkable to me because what has happened has hurt economic development. It's, it's hurt farmers. I mean, we've dropped from, what, 80,000, 90,000 hog farmers in Iowa to seven, six, seven, eight thousand, something like that. And, and a, lot of these, uh, a lot of these operations are under contract. So your farmer is no longer truly the owner of that business they're working on contract for some big corporation now this one sounds like it's a little bit different it sounds like it is at least locally owned but still uh, on a scale that is inappropriate for the uh, the landscape <laughs> the ecosystem now, the, the the scale is really uh, a big concern uh and the the cattle um the original proposal and i don't know this precisely how it's gone forward, but it was going to be a contract feeding operation. In other words, uh, farmers from anywhere could mm -hmm. send their cattle here and the uh, Supreme Beef would, uh, for a fee, uh, feed the cattle uh, and uh, for the owners of the cattle, and then Supreme Beef would, would make their money that way. And when we say feed, uh, we're talking about corn, primarily. Uh Primarily, yeah. And, and of course, uh, some of the local farmers say, well, yeah, they're going to need uh, a lot more corn uh, to feed those cattle. So some of the local farmers would indeed uh, benefit from having that, uh, you know, being able to produce corn to feed the cattle. And of course, uh, of course, cattle really aren't designed to eat corn. <laughs> Let's be honest about that, too. <laughs> they're, well, they're, they're grazers. They need to be out yeah. on grass, you know. Yeah. And, uh, so I just... That, that that's another topic of discussion as as well yeah. but yeah livestock uh, on grass is one of the ways that they talk about rebuilding our, our, our soil health right so, yeah uh, another uh, thing that, that some farmers uh, are eager to see this happen because the manure from the uh, the livestock operation can be if it's treated correctly in a pride applied correctly can be good fertilizer. So some of the farmers were eager to get the manure uh, from the livestock operation. Right. The, the concern comes, however, in Northeast Iowa, we've got a lot of streams, we've got a lot of hills, uh, some erosion problems, and is that manure going to get into our water and cause problems? And 
as careful as we try to be, uh, it's going to happen. Yeah. So what can people do if they're concerned about this and they want to weigh in on it before it is a done deal? So, well, uh, talk to your legislators, uh, which may, may not uh, do much good. Uh, you know, I think uh, in general, the Iowa legislature tries to be pretty pro-agriculture. Uh, talk to DNR uh, officials. And, and again, um, the uh, Jared Walls' uh, father-in-law, Dan Zumbach, has been in touch with the DNR director, Kayla Lyon, and they supposedly have an agreement, yet yes, this uh, facility uh, is, is going to happen. Uh, and the DNR uh, staff uh, approved the permit to allow it to happen. Yeah. So now it's just a question of whether that uh, permit might stand. Uh, any questions yeah. that some of us might try to bring up about whether the DNR actually used the right information mm. um, okay. to uh, allow the permit. So again, not too late to, to weigh in on it. And you know, for the record, I, I'm I'm strongly pro agriculture. I just think this is the wrong kind of agriculture. And I think I think more and more people have that concern too. Uh, Larry, um, thank you so much for joining us. We have got to run to a break, uh, folks. We've been talking with Larry Stone, and Larry, if folks want to get in touch with uh, you or someone else working on this. Is there a particular website or email address they should go to? Uh, you can reach me indirectly through my web st website, which is Larry Stones with an S, Iowa.com. Great. Uh, that's, you can, there's contact information okay. there. You can reach me. Great. Thank you, Larry. Hey, folks, when we come back, uh, Lynn County Auditor Joel Miller is going to join us. We're going to be talking about the declaration by Secretary of State Paul Pate that a bunch of voters, even if they might have voted last year, are now inactive. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. You can also enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates, too. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you folks. Uh, we're broadcasting, as always, from Des Moines, Iowa, the heart of America's heartland. Thanks to the local businesses that helped make this program possible. Thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, where Mark Klipsham offers planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from green bins. That's architecture by synthesis. I'd like to welcome Joel Miller to the program. Joel is the Lynn County Auditor, and uh, he recently sent a letter to Iowa Republican Secretary of State um, Paul Pate 
regarding alleged errors that Pate's office made uh, that resulted in, I think, maybe thousands of Iowa voters being declared, quote, inactive. Joel, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. First of all, what does it mean to be inactive? Well, normally it would be that you missed voting in two successive general elections. And that's how the law read in previous times before it was changed recently in March. You miss uh, two general elections, you go from active status to inactive status. And what does that mean? When you're inactive, uh, how does that impact your ability to vote? Well, it impacts your ability in that when you walk in to vote, the poll worker, precinct election official, is going to tell you that you're inactive. And, of course, they're going to ask for your driver's license, and they're going to ask uh, to verify your current residence, which may or may not have changed, and you may or may not be in the right uh, polling place. But uh, at that point, you can be reactivated uh, as soon as you vote. Um, You can also be reactivated if you have some interaction um, with an election official or the Secretary of State's office. Uh, If there's been a piece of mail sent to you or something like that, then you can uh, activate yourself that way so, so, request an absentee ballot. So that sounds so there's multiple ways to get uh, reactivated, but it's a uh, it's it's an inconvenience uh, to say the least. Well, it sounds like a bureaucratic headache as well. I mean, why? I mean, reactivating an inactive voter inevitably involves work either by some county official or the state officials or both. Correct. Well, in this case, the inactivations occurred. Uh, by the Secretary of State, by an action that the Secretary of State took, the activations will have to be done by the 99 county auditor's offices okay, if so, and when those voters come in. So the uh, the state office basically dumped more work on the county officials. Potent- well, yeah. Potentially. In, in, yeah. A, in a sense, it was an unfunded mandate. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay, well, so many of those these days from the, uh, from the party that claims to uh, want to uh, minimize the influence of uh, centralized government. Uh, kind of fascinating, but anyway, the um, I mean, part of the problem it sounds like if if you're uh, if you're inactive, you've you've got to work harder to prove your identity when you go to the polls, and that could be problematic for somebody that might have forgot their license, or maybe they've moved. And if they've moved, am I correct? If you've moved, you have to show more than a license. You've got to maybe show mail that indicates where you've moved to. Correct. 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 You have to update your address. So it's uh, it's not just uh, that. It's that that. If you got inactivated and you voted, and we've already had those calls to our office, hey, I voted, why was I inactivated? So the the big picture is that this, this situation uh, basically undermines elections in Iowa, uh, especially when you uh, now take a deceased person who we canceled because they're deceased, and now they're inactive status. So... Everyone talks about um, fraud being committed. Well, you just enabled people to commit fraud because now they went from being dead and deceased and canceled to <laughs> active. Uh, I'm and sorry. I, 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 I probably shouldn't be laughing at that, but that's just um, that 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 is hilarious <laughs> in terms of the 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 how nonsensical that is and. I mean, only a bureaucracy that's out of touch with reality could have come up with that scenario. 
Well, the whole thing could have been avoided had the Secretary of State's office just checked with a few counties and said, hey, we're going to inactivate, in Lynn County's case, 18,000 voters. Is that the number that you show that didn't vote? And we could have did some research on it and say, yeah, our numbers match your number. That looks good. Send out those no activation notices. The other part that I contend is wrong is that they made this retroactive. So normally you're inactivated after missing two successive general elections. In this case, since they relied upon the new law, they made people inactive after missing one one uh, general election. And, and that the new law you're referring to was passed largely under Republican leadership of the House and Senate and signed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. Um, but that was that one of the intentions of the uh, of the drafters of that bill? Again, we have bills all across the country that are trying to find ways of suppressing voter turnout. And Iowa is no different. And it seems like, you know, even though that might have been a, a maybe not the focus of the of the public uh, you know, uh, analysis of the bill, it might have been one of the one of the intended consequences. Well, even if it uh, was an intended consequence, in a sense, you're punishing voters for something that wasn't the law because they didn't vote in November 2020. I'm not saying anybody would have voted had they known they were going to be inactivated. But the fact of it is they had no idea that this was going to happen because the law wasn't passed till March when they voted uh, they missed the election in, in November. And my other contention is that it shouldn't be retroactive. And I'm relying upon uh, basically some legal counsel uh, that says, hey, this uh, legislation contained criminal penalties, felonies, in fact, uh, for punishment right. against That's auditors right. and election officials. Yeah, you could go to and, jail. <laughs> and so they made it, so they, they violated the principle of ex post facto, um, making it a crime for something you did uh, six months ago. It's not a crime not to vote, but you understand that that bill contained criminal provisions which cannot be made retroactive, and yet they made it retroactive. That sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen. Well, it didn't happen to me, so we're going to have to have an aggrieved party uh, that... Right. that uh, is upset about it. I mean, they also inactivated 17-year-olds. So the Secretary of State spends most of his time going out and registering people to vote, giving awarding cap awards to uh, various schools for hitting 80 or 90 percent. And then canceling them. And then canceled <laughs> them before they even before it was legal for them to vote. They oh, got gosh. they got well, they didn't get canceled. They got inactivated. Right. Well, I'm I'm so, I'm, I'm using the popular term. So, yes. Right. So that you know, what's the message there? Um, yeah. You know, he should probably stop doing that if he's going to go and inactivate them before they ever have a chance to vote. So uh, you're one of 99 county officials in Iowa, 99 county auditors. You are the county auditor in the second largest county in the state. I would presume that um, Secretary um, Paul, Sta uh, Paul Pate would, uh, would be fairly quick to get back to you. Did he respond to your letter right away? Uh, as of this point in time today, no. No response from him, his legal counsel, or his chief of staff, and all three were sent the message at the same time. And when was um, that? When was that? When were they contacted? When did you? They, that that uh, that email went out to them on uh, Thursday late afternoon, and then we didn't hear anything back. So I issued a press release to inform the public as to what was going on on mm -hmm. Friday, uh, trying to get this out uh, to uh, to the electorate because. Uh, 
I know what happened in Lincoln County. Uh, my assumption is, um, based upon some anecdotal evidence, that yes, it happened in several other counties, but did it happen in all 99 counties? I can't prove that. But um, I'm sure the Secretary of State knows exactly uh, now what they did. Is something like this happening in other states? Uh, and maybe that's beyond your knowledge, but I just thought I should see if, I mean, this sounds like a tactic that that could be very effective if your goal is to suppress the vote. And I would assume that it's being replicated elsewhere. Well, I don't know. I haven't heard that. Um, the, the, the bigger, again, uh, another big problem is that you basically corrupted uh, the voter registration list in the state of Iowa by what you did. And there's no admission uh, by the Secretary of State that they did anything wrong. And yet uh, we're getting phone calls. So individuals right. who've been affected know it. And uh, to say that they're mad is, is an understatement. Yeah. Um, especially the ones who voted and didn't get credit for voting uh, and got this notice, they're really upset. So right. we have all this and, and talk just to be just about, to be just to be clear, Jill, when you say those who voted but didn't get credit for voting, you're referring to some of the people who voted but their vote wasn't counted. Uh, I mean, I mean the um, the list of people who voted in the congressional race, uh, the second second district congressional race. I mean, if all those votes had been counted appropriately, we probably would have had a different congressperson right now. And so the um, I mean, what you're referring to is, for example, uh, an envelope they didn't seal properly. Um, one that might have had a tear in it or something, uh, some some signature discrepancy. Uh, I know I know there are cases where voters checked with the election officials at the polling place to say, "Will my ballot count?" And they were told yes, and then their ballots didn't count. So I guess well, you're, you're, are, you're talking these about these are that. actually people that did vote. We know they voted, um, but uh, this the 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 uh, system didn't didn't update and show that they voted. Uh, as, and were credited with voting inside of the uh, state I voter system. So that's the other discovery that occurred. And that's that's just basic accounting. If the secretary would have said, "Hey, I'm inactivating 18,000 of your voters," do you have do you show the same number? And then yeah. we could have looked at it and say, yeah. "No, that that's not the number we have," and it could have been investigated. Uh, and determined whether or not you know whether our number is higher or lower than theirs. Yeah. Well, Joel, I, yeah. I, re I, re I really thank you for joining us. I've got to run to a break. Uh, I, I will be interested in tracking this and seeing how it resolves. And again, this has been happening all over the country, folks. Various strategies being used to depress, to suppress the vote. Uh, Joel, thank you really for taking the time to visit with us today. You're welcome, Matt. Appreciate folks, the, uh, the reach out. Folks, your we're, we're talking with Lynn County Auditor Joel Miller. When we come back from a short break, uh, Dr. Maureen McHugh with Physicians for Social Responsibility is going to join us. We're going to talk about how one small library is leading the way on climate change, even as the nearby state university seems to be stalling out in some of its efforts. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. 
Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, spring is going great, guns, folks, and we're very happy to see warm weather here in the heartland. Uh, I'd like to take a second to thank some of our local business partners, well, specifically uh, thanking Noche Jazz and Cabaret, uh, S. Des Moines' premier jazz club. They feature both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Noche also has a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Check them out, folks. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. I'm uh, going to welcome to the program now Maureen McHugh. Dr. Maureen McHugh is a retired physician and public health professor and also a 20-year veteran of coordinating Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility. Maureen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. Nice to hear you. Yeah, and it's, you nice know, to participate. Yeah, there's, um, you know, there, finally there's some stuff happening on climate change at the federal level. It's about time. But still, there's a lot of, um, a lot of the initiative is local and I know that uh, the library in Iowa City has done uh, has taken some steps that maybe more libraries ought to take. You want to tell us about that? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Thank you for asking. Um, as you probably know, we've spent much of the last year talking to people in as most a positive of tone as, as possible about what we can all do to make every day Earth Day. And since this is, you know, Earth Day month again, um, we decided to put up this big installation reminding people of how many paths there are. Um, you know, there's kind of the issue of the day. This is a crisis bearing down on us, and everybody wants, you know, the one silver bullet to solve it. But in fact, we have both a climate crisis. We have a, you know, extinction crisis. We have a social breakdown crisis. We have all sorts of problems with waste and garbage right. and so on and so on. So they're all interconnected. And so what our installation is all about, thanks so much to the support of the library, is showing all the different paths that people can take, all the different things that need to be addressed if we're going to solve these interconnected problems. So is, no one person can do it all, but it, we, if we're aware of the big picture, hopefully each one of us has a way that we can contribute. So is this, to, uh, is this somewhat of an art installation? Yeah, kind okay. of. Um, I sort of repurposed a number of images and, and tried to bring them together as uh, parts of paths and the uh, top path is where we want to go, where we need to go, the path we need to stay on to clean our air, get good energy, yeah. um, maintain our force. And the lower path is the path that we are already on, which is bringing us really mm. to extinction if yeah. we don't get off that path. Now, sci scientifically, none of that is controversial, but politically, I'm afraid, in some circles, it is controversial. Have you had any pushback, any any negative response from the public or anyone else? 
No, you know, I, I was so pleased while we were putting it up, people would wander by and ask about it and inquire about it and say thanks, you know, for putting it up. And then the library itself looked for any and all books, both in the adult sections and the science sections and the children's sections, um, to um, present all the various books on the subjects mm. from things as disparate, you know, as um, children uh, working to save different animals to uh, Michael Clare's book from 2019 about all hell breaking loose in the military because they recognize what's going on. They yeah. know they have to uh, respond both for their own sake and uh, for preventing uh, these complex crises around the world. So the kinds of things that the library has pulled together are very supportive. And um, I, so far, you know, we haven't gotten any negative responses. I mean, I think almost everybody is on board with many of these issues the problem is they don't always see the connection yeah so I, and, I and that was the goal by making it pass right you know is to show the connections and then underneath it we have pillars that support either our current route to extinction like greed and Ouch. growth and and uh, competition racism versus the things that would allow us to grow into a right. more sustainable, livable future, this sounds like, like cooperation and that sort of thing. This sounds like mm -hmm. the sort of uh, display, the sort of installation that might be well-received or at least um, well-purposed at other libraries. What about the University of Iowa Library? Is that something they might be interested in? Well, I, I didn't actually go over there. We have in the past, uh, PSR Iowa has done a variety of installations at libraries. Uh, if there's any site that is supportive of sharing ideas and sometimes, you know, even provoking a little bit of controversy, so long as you have, you know, your kind of your data and your reasoning and your sources available. So at, at this point, I, we didn't check out the university library, but we have been kind of talking to other libraries and other places where we might move uh, this or a similar installation. Good. And are you getting good response from those libraries? Uh, so far, so good, yeah. I, uh, I mean, it, it took us, you know, a day and a half, almost two days to put this up. Wow. So. Um, we're not about to move it. Yeah, leave it, leave it, leave it up for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll we'll leave it up until toward the end of of May, um, and for a good five weeks. And you know, these kinds of issues aren't going to go away tomorrow, and they're not going to change terribly. In fact, that was one of the questions. Well, the the only way they might change is for the worse. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But I think you know what we've been trying to show is that there are lots of really, really good uh, solutions out there. There's lots of wonderful cooperative operations between um, civil society organizations uh, and uh, nonprofits. And the, the information is out there. The ability to do the right thing is out there. We just have to get out from under the thumb of the people who feel that the only solution is going to be brought to us, you know, by big companies, CEOs, right. and big tech. And, and that's just not how it's going to yeah. be. It's going to no, be people coming together. It's going to take all of us. It's going to take government. It's going to take businesses as well. I am encouraged to see three, was it 300 businesses or 
Well, no, it was it was uh, 55 large businesses that all stepped forward and said to President Biden, "Hey, you got to do more. We got to get the 50 percent reduction of, of fossil fuels by 20." 20- 30. That was good. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I think the university situation, uh, we've seen some universities moving forward with divestment of funds in fossil fuel companies. And I mean, what's back to University of Iowa? Uh, what, what is their what is their commitment to well, trying to do something? You know, right we, we we just happen to live in this red rural state that is ruled at right now by people who really um, toe the line in many ways of uh, the most powerful industrial polluters out there and, and uh, have been really reticent to support the university moving forward. They have a wonderful uh, bunch of people in the sustainability um, program who are doing good work, and yet, you know, the university signed on to this biomass program uh, uh, form of energy for the university over the, you know, next couple decades to um, offset some of their debts. And the the idea that they haven't moved further faster is kind of disappointing because the yeah. resources are there, the sure. people are there, yeah. the faculty uh, have lots of good ideas, but yet they've yeah. been very slow. They've done some things. I mean, it's not all negative, but... It's been slower than some of the smaller yeah. universities and colleges, even in this state. I mean, right. you go to Pella, and they have done wonderful things at yeah. that university in, yeah. in terms of renewables and recycling yeah. and, you know, cleaning the water and yeah. the air. And well, Maureen, great I, model. Yeah, I really, uh, I really thank you for joining us, Maureen. Uh, folks, have been talking to Dr. Maureen McHugh, and I thank you for your work and for the work of Physicians for Social Responsibility, all doing important uh, stuff. Thank you. Okay, thank you for having me. Yeah. Folks, when we come back from a short break, uh, talk about institutions moving in the right direction on sustainability. Well, we're going to talk about the Girl Scouts, and we're going to talk with Ashley Boningcamp, a local Girl Scout leader, and Kathy Burns at Birds and Bees Urban Farm about how Girl Scouts are beginning to say stuff about local food security. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive talk and uh, civil dialogue across the political divide here from America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, that's my grocery store. And again, um, they're open seven days a week for uh, breakfast, lunch, and supper. You can also order your groceries online now. 
uh, Gateway, their um, their team will bring their bring those groceries to you curbside. Uh, you can order, you know, yeah, through the cafe. You can order dine in, carry out, delivery service seven days a week. Catering and floral services also available. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. All right, thanks to uh, uh, to our next guest, uh, Ashley Bonenkamp, joining Kathy Burns and I to talk about Girl Scouts. Yep, we're doing this in the context of our local food seg- segment. Ashley, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed. Happy to be here. And Kathy, of course, welcome to the program as well. Oh, it's cool to be here with both of you. You all are both Girl Scouts. I, I was not a Girl Scout. I was a Boy Scout, though. I was not a very good Boy Scout. Oh, you were a Boy Scout. I was. Okay. Yeah, but I was not a gr- I was not a great Boy Scout. Let me guess. You didn't follow the rules. I didn't follow the rules very well. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't surprise either of us. Ashley, you were kind enough to invite me to go talk to your Girl Scout troop recently about how to help the Earth um, continue to be able to support human life, basically. In other words, <laughs> responding to climate change. And it was kind of an Earth Day thing. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, what, what uh, precipitated your invitation for that event? Oh, Kathy, we were so grateful for you to attend while we were earning our Global Action Badge. Uh, I've been a Girl Scout troop leader for about five years now. And so our uh, girls have gone from daisies to brown brownies, and now they are junior Girl Scouts. And every year we're able to set a curriculum with our meetings based off of earning badges that kind of fit uh, the parameters that we want to instill in our young girls and our troops. So they're about fourth and fifth grade, uh, nine, 10 age. And so this year was all about, um, since it's an election year, a big year uh, for our country, we kept it all about government, uh, leadership, citizenship, and then global action was another key component to that as well. So it was so last minute, Kathy, I can't believe you were even able to join us. And I was going through the activity list and I thought, I know an expert on urban farming and global action and climate change. I'm just going to have Kathy do this for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no expert, but uh, it was really fun. The girls are so curious and they're so knowledgeable. They already have a good base of knowledge. Um, That was that was the nice. It wasn't a surprise, but it was such a good thing for me to see. Did you bring some show and tell? I did. Yeah, I did. Um, Ashley, was it a bit much? I brought plants. I brought a beehive box, and I suited up in my bee suit. An empty beehive think, box. Yes. I think okay. your suit may have been a bit much. I think Ed should have gotten you a size or two smaller. Oh, well, that was a small one. Everything you brought was so uh, key to what you were talking about. The girls were excited to see the plants, the eggs. They got to taste some honey, which was fun. We were outside, socially distant, with masks on. And mm-hmm. um, I think everything that you demonstrated and displayed was good for them to see in real life and not have to try to visualize through a screen or um, watch through a YouTube video. Well, it was fun to talk about sustainability. I I don't know about YouTube, but in your former scouting careers, do you remember anybody talking about sustaining the earth? Ed, what did you experience? Uh, We went out to the woods and we um, we pulled up a lot of plants. Uh, (laughs) um, We we lit fires. Um, (laughs) We learned how to shoot guns. No, I don't remember anything about sustainability. 
Ashley, how about you when <laughs> you, know, you were a little? I, since I'm a little bit younger than Ed, yeah, just yeah, by a few okay, years, right? I think we had a, a little bit of it. I think we just started touching on the reduce, reuse, recycle oh, concept. Yes. And, you know, turning off the water faucet when you're brushing your teeth, that the water doesn't need to be running the whole time. Very simple ideas like that, um, but nothing to the extent of what the girls are learning now. Yeah, that's a great that's a great evolution. Um, I know that Boy Scouts was originally established as a response to militarization in Britain. It was kind of a, hey, we oh. have an alternative to kids having to sign up to, the, to join the Army. Um, and then it kind of became somewhat militarized itself over the years. So it's nice to see a, a transition toward... Some you know practices that are I think more desperately needed these times and um, more in touch with uh, our you know with nature and and um, you know community values. Absolutely, we've been doing a lot in regard to citizenship, uh, mm-hmm. what it means to be active in your community and let your voice be heard. The girls sat in on a. Um, uh, the education uh, council meetings with their school board. And that was really interesting because they were making decisions on whether they were going virtual or not. And in the past, because they were younger, we had done Earth Day celebrations where we did cleanup activities. But Mm. I felt like they were old enough now to really understand how they could do more. And um, Kathy, because of your prompt, we have a couple of girls (laughs) who are writing the president as we speak, sending in notes about climate change and how important it is that we are a leader in the world for that. So pretty proud of them. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, they knew they knew quite a bit about the um, planting process, about compost, about uh, not using chemicals on your lawns and your um, vegetable plants, your fruits. So I was really impressed with that. Have they had some prior information leading up to my visit? Yes, we have talked a little bit about. Um, the whole gardening concept we've earned a couple of other badges on a smaller scale with a similar vein um but they haven't really spoken to anyone who's doing it hands-on to really feed themselves i think um their concept of it in the past was maybe just more of a hobby or mm-hmm. something that's fun but not necessarily something that's so sustainable long term throughout the year so to see you doing it in such a scale in your yard was i think pretty exciting for them to see well, if it were better times for uh, being able to be connected to people, I would have brought more treats. They did get to taste the honey. We did that in a very safe, sanitary way. You would have made them an omelet? <laughs> I would have brought you to make the omelet. <laughs> oh, that's right. Me. And I would have cooked the omelet over an open fire of wood. It would have. Yeah. <laughs> I did bring some eggs, and they, they liked all the pretty colors, but they were also interested in the way the chickens are raised, and that was cool. No, I will mm-hmm. say I, I was kind of kind of dissing my Boy Scout days, but I will say you know they taught me some things that were still very very valuable to me. I, mean, I still know how to tie a bunch of knots that are really <laughs> helpful. Uh, I gained some appreciation for appropriate ways to set up a tent, which of course came in handy in a big way for me in 2014 when I slept in a tent every night while watching while walking across the U.S. Not every night, Ed. Nearly every oh, night. Oh, thanks for calling I, them out. I've read the book. Okay, well, good. I, I'm glad to know you've read the book. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, three fourths of the nights, anyway. <laughs> but no, it's uh, they're, 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 it's scouting is uh, still very relevant and, and and a very valuable experience, and that's exciting to see that some of what they took home from the uh, presentation that Kathy shared, you know, is is leading to additional action, to additional active, additional activity. So. 
Next week, we're going to evolve what Kathy shared, and we're going to build our own planters. And I think oh. some of it's going to be flowers that may be edible. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely uh, those that are going to be um, what bees and butterflies enjoy. And then I think we might even put some cabbage or some okay. lettuce or things like that mm-hmm. in there as well. So they can actually take what Kathy was talking about and apply it into something they can take home themselves. A recommendation for a planter like that, it's a very pretty plant and very edible kale. Kale, kale. wonderful. It, and if you keep it trimmed, it doesn't have to get as tall as a palm tree like ours do, but you can, it, it can be a lovely plant. Now, that's an exaggeration. It, it is. It's, it, they don't get as tall as palm trees, but they look like palm trees when they... Bonsai palm trees. Yes. Yeah, very good. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah. No, that's great. You know, I think uh, even better than just uh, having somebody like Kathy go and talk to a troop bring the troop to the site. I mean, and it's not just um, not just Birds and Bees Urban Farm, but you've got uh, so many places in Des Moines, more and more places all the time that are doing uh, really interesting stuff with land, with soil, with food, with, with uh, vegetables and animals. Uh, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know if your troop is capable of doing uh, field tours like that, but uh, you know, that, those, those could be pretty, pretty instructive just when you get to see it up close on site. Oh, I would agree. And I, we haven't been very active. We've done most of our meetings virtually in the last year due to the pandemic. Uh, but I think that those are amazing suggestions once we all get past this crazy year that we've been a part of. Yeah, I think we're getting there. Yes, yeah. we are. We are. Yeah. Um, I I also uh, mentioned you're welcome to come just host a meeting at the farm here if you want. So that's always open. Wonderful. So speaking of civic responsibility, also uh, involvement on the, the small level outside of emailing the president, uh, getting involved with the city council, um, paying attention to what the city is doing as far as sustainability. There's a sustainability task force, and Ed and I are part of a food security task force centered for now around growing food in your spaces that you have available. So that's just another thing that the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and all the kids can do is kind of focus in on what's going on right here at home. Oh, I love it. Ashley, uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Folks, we've been talking with Ashley Bonenkamp. She's uh, a Girl Scout troop leader here in Des Moines. Kathy Burns has been with me as well. Of course, always uh, we do this last segment together every week to try to bring attention to the importance of urban agriculture. Uh, Thanks to all of our guests today. In addition to Kathy and and Ashley, uh, Joel Miller, Larry Stone, and Maureen McHugh. Uh, Thanks to our business partners, Gateway Market. Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Noche Jazz and Cabaret, and our nonprofit partners as well, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farms. Thanks to uh, Brother Trucker. Thanks to our production team of uh, Sherry Herdine and Kathy Burns. Please subscribe to this program. You can tune in on, uh, on the Fallon Forum uh, website, but also on your preferred podcast platform. And, of course, a ver- variety of local stations around the country. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host, thanking you for joining the Fallon Forum.